Amen. Hey, before you have a seat, before you have a seat, can you stand? We're going to read God's word together just to continue in our worships. Grab your Bibles, remain standing to honor God's word, and turn to Isaiah chapter 9. We've been reading this passage together every week, and um, there's nothing I have to say other than what God's word already says, so we are going to unpack it together. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Hear the word of the Lord. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The word of the Lord. You can have a seat as we continue. I'm excited uh, for what our church has been discovering and unpacking together as we go through the season of Advent. And so here we are in our third week of our Advent series, His Name Shall Be. And just a reminder, Advent is a, is a simple word that means an anticipated arrival, right? So it's the car pulling in the driveway that contains the friends or the relatives on Christmas Day, the the unwrapping of the present to realize it is the thing that you were hoping for, right? It is the anticipated arrival of something that you have hoped for. And building on that anticipation, we focus on four themes that lead us to Christmas. And here at Gospel City, we've also been allowing the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9 to guide us on that journey as well. So we've already looked at hope from the wonderful counselor, joy from the mighty God, and today we are focusing on love from an everlasting father. And so as we light the candle that represents love, I wanted to read this prayer together. So hear these words, make this as a prayer of your own heart, a Puritan prayer from the Valley of Vision says this, pray with me, Lord Jesus, give me to love thee, to embrace thee. Though I once took lust and sin in my arms, thou didst love me before I loved thee, an enemy, a sinner, a loathsome worm. Thou didst own me when I disclaimed myself. Thou dost love me as a son, and weep over me as over Jerusalem. Love brought thee from heaven to earth, from earth to the cross, from the cross to the grave. Love caused thee to be weary, hungry, tempted, scorned, scourged, buffeted, spat upon, crucified, and pierced. Love led thee to bow thy head in death. My salvation is the point where perfect created love in the most perfect uncreated love meet together. For thou dost welcome me, not like Joseph and his brothers, loving and sorrowing, but loving and rejoicing. This love is not intermittent, cold, changeable. It does not cease or abate for all my enmity. Holiness is a spark from thy love, kindled to a flame in my heart by thy spirit, And so it ever turns to the place from which it comes. Let me see thy love everywhere, 
not only in the cross, but in the fellowship of believers and in the world around me. When I feel the warmth of the sun, may I praise thee who art the sun of righteousness with healing power. When I feel the tender rain, may I think of the gospel showers that water my soul. When I walk by the riverside, may I praise thee for that stream that makes the eternal city glad and washes white my robes that I may have the right to the tree of life. Thy infinite love is a mystery of mysteries, and my eternal rest lies in the internal enjoyment of it. Amen. As we start this morning, I want to uh, just reveal something about myself that is a little embarrassing. It's something I, I've I dealt with. I've, I've unpacked it in my own life, and it's just a reality of, of who I was. For most of my teenage and adult years, there was something about myself that I just, I wasn't proud of, but it was just how I felt. It was the reality of where I was. There wasn't really anything I could do about it. I tried to change. I tried to think differently about it, but I just couldn't get myself to do it in that season of my life. I thought babies were like kind of disgusting. Like not just babies, like, like birth through third grade, like no interest, no cuteness factor, um, just no desire to even be around children at all. And people would like hand me a baby. It was like handing me a time bomb, time bomb of like puke and poop, which is pretty accurate. But I would, just, I would literally just hold a child like this and just look, someone please take this away from me, please, right? And uh, again, I wasn't proud of it. it just, it was just how I looked at it. And I, as I got older, I, I started to have friends who would have kids and I'd try, I'd go to the hospital. I try to be a good friend and they'd be like, do you want to hold him? Do you want to hold her? And I'd be like, absolutely not, but yes. And so I, you know, just like hold it. And my heart rate would just be elevated the whole time. And I'm like, okay, that's enough. And like, it was 10 seconds. I was like, that's plenty. And, um, and you know, I, I, I did my best. And then I, I met uh, this girl, her name's Jennifer, uh, and we started dating. And at the time we started dating, she was a nanny for a four-month-old uh, baby girl. And she just loved babies in general. So I was like, well, now I have to lie for the rest of my life to this girl because uh, she's very cute and I want to keep it that way. And, um, and there was this one moment... I remember in our dating, and she uh, nannied through the day, but she was also finishing her senior year of college, and she had a class that conflicted with the time that she was watching this girl. And she said, hey, can you um, come, come and just watch her for an hour? And I was like, unsupervised, without another adult in the room? Just me. And she was like, yeah. And I was like, okay. And, um, and so I, I did it, and the, the child did not die. And I, you know, I did my best, and she had, I don't think she had any idea. And so that was you know, a win for me. But then, fast forward a few years later, we get married, and, and then we find out we're pregnant. And I'm like, the jig is up. It's, uh, it's done. I'm going to have to tell her, hey, you're on your own until they're like, you know, able to like, drive. And then um, <laughs> we'll be all right. We'll figure it out. And she... But here's what happened, right? I'm, I'm exaggerating a bit, but what, what started to happen in my heart and what started to happen in my perspective was that as my wife started to grow as a human being, I felt a growing desire to know, love, protect, help, care for this child that I had never met. And then the day came where Mason was born and the nurse handed him to me and I did not hold him as far away as possible, I, I, I held him as close as I possibly could. And I, I pulled him into myself. And I wanted so badly 
to do everything that he could ever need. I had a bond now with this child and, and the things that I had found like gross and disgusting before, they were now just necessary tasks that had to happen to care for this child that I loved. What happened? I became a father. It was no longer uh, observing or just being in proximity to children. I loved that child. Their needs took precedence over mine. My thoughts and desires were now filtered through what was best for them. And so another eight years later, a couple kids later, and I can claim the term father, and there's two comprehensive truths that I have discovered in the eight years that I have been a father. One is that I have failed in my role as a father. And two is that I cannot provide everything my children need. And you're like, that's so depressing. And it kind of is, because as a dad, I have no desire to ever let my kids down, for them to be disappointed or discouraged towards my relationship with them, but they have been, and they will be again. And I have no desire for them to ever feel lack or get hurt or need anything, but the truth is, is that they will. And no matter what I do, there will always be a gap between what they need and what I can provide at various times. And I want to set the stage with that this morning because if I read the words everlasting father in Isaiah 9 through the lens of what I understand as being a father, I look at the love of Jesus Christ through my perspective of what I know a father to be there's a danger of reducing it down to a flawed, imperfect, finite accessory rather than seeing it as the marvelous, perfect, eternal attribute of the Messiah. So I wanna unpack this together, why seeing Jesus as an everlasting father is an important context in our relationship with him. And then I wanna look at what the love of this everlasting father looks like to his children. But I wanna give a disclaimer as we start because I realize and I want to sympathize with those when I say the word father, there are a lot of emotions that get drummed up for you. I wanna sympathize with those who struggle to think of the Lord as a father because nothing about that term is good for you. Whether it was abuse, Emotionally, verbally, physically, or sexually. Whether it was absence, dad left, or he was there in body, but so distant, no engagement, or dad has passed away, and the hole that he's left in the family is gaping wide. Or maybe just the relationship is arduous and difficult and when people ask you what why don't you see your dad more why don't you talk to your dad your stock answer is it's a long story there's a hundred other scenarios and I want to sympathize with you I can't empathize I'm grateful to the Lord that he gave me a godly father who loved his wife and his children and gave me example after example of how to be a father to my kids thank you dad And I also want to acknowledge that that's not everyone's story. 
And even my story is not everyone's story. As I described becoming a father, that is difficult for some of you who have a strong desire to be a father. Some of you I know personally who are waiting on the Lord to give you that blessing. Whether it's because you're not married yet or you're walking through infertility or you've experienced the death or loss of a child. I want you to hear me that you are not unseen in these moments. As I prepared this week, I wept over the state of fatherhood in our world. And I believe the Lord does as well. He sees you. He says this to King Hezekiah in 2 Kings. He says, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. I believe he wants to say that to people today. In Psalm 147, it declares that God, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. I believe that the Lord wants to bind up some father wounds today by revealing what the everlasting father truly looks like. So with that, I, I want to also just clear up any misconception. As you read Isaiah 9, it, it, it might be easy to kind of misconceive what Isaiah is referencing in this prophecy. Let me just remind you that this is not... Uh, just a willy-nilly word that Isaiah is writing. He is giving a clear prophecy about a coming Messiah, a king, to the nation of Israel. Look again at verse 7 of chapter 9. It says, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever." More The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So after the names given in verse 6, Isaiah is clarifying who that person will be. He will be a king. Everlasting father is not a reference to God the father. In fact, this is not speaking about the Trinity, the triune God at all. While we understand very little about the Trinity, we do understand it to be three persons One God, God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God the Father is God, God the Son is God, and God the Spirit is God. At the same time, the Father is not the Son or the Spirit, the Son is not the Father or the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. However, God is one, three persons, one essence. If your brain hurts, it should. But at times, this name, Everlasting Father, assigned to the birth of Jesus throughout history, it's been used as an argument for modalism, that there is no trinity, it's just different aspects of the same being. And that's a wild misuse of this verse. And it's helpful to know that the the Hebrew translation is better translated as Father of Eternity. The Jews often use the word Father to describe something as the source, the originator, Right, for a bad example, in John chapter 8, Satan is described as the father of lies. So here, this Messiah, Jesus the Son, distinct member of the Trinity, present at the beginning of time, involved in the creation of all things, as Colossians 1 tells us, for by him all things were created, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That Jesus is the father of eternity, everlasting father. But there is also the implication that Isaiah is asking us to consider when it comes to the role that this child will fulfill in Israel's history. 
Again, we're talking about a prophecy about a coming king who will reign. And we can see it in the context of the, of the full story of Jesus being born and, and living and starting his ministry, living a perfect life, dying on the cross, and now reigning at the right hand of God. But see, this nation of Israel would have looked at it and been hoping for, awaiting, anticipating a king to sit on a physical throne and to rule their nation. And so the language that Isaiah is using is, is clear. He's giving characteristics of this king, the king who is wise in his counsel, who is a strong and mighty warrior and is fatherly in his reign. Not just temporarily, as, as you can understand, a king's reign was limited by how long they could live. And Isaiah is declaring, no, this one has no end. So the quality of the king's reign will be like a father and the quantity of his reign will be eternal. This is not a viral tyrant, not a corrupt ruler, not a temporary overseer, but a loving, kind, compassionate, eternal, fatherly king. What Isaiah is communicating to those hearing this prophecy is simply this, the Messiah will be a father to his people forever. That's an encouragement to us, a promise that we can hold on to, that the miracle of Christmas does not stop at the birth of Jesus, but it culminates into the reign of a king who loves and cherishes his people. And when we look at Jesus' life, we see the way that he loved and cared for people being a direct correlation of his father. Jesus the Son resembles God the Father in the way he loves his children. Has anyone ever told you that you look like one of your parents? Have you ever gotten that? Uh, my kids get that a lot. We'll be at, at stores and, you know, cashier or someone will stop me. I'm like, I want you just a little mini you, you know. And I uh, feel bad for those kids. Um, luckily, Lyric got her mother's looks. But recently, uh, my dad was digging through some old fo photos and he found this photo of him and he, uh, he sent it out to like our family group chat. There's a good looking man right there, dad. I want that guitar still, that's a classic. Um, so, you know, he sent this and I was just like, in my head, I'm instantly like, man, some family resemblance, right? And so I found a, a, a picture from around the same time that looked like this and put it side by side for you. I mean, we're like the same, we could have been best friends in middle school, <laughs> right? And it's easy to see, like when I, when I put it in that context, it's easy to see. And I've, I've never like been, I'm not the type of person that looks around and be like, oh, you look like them, right? When I find out people have share the same last name or they come from the family, then you start looking for the family resemblance, right? You're like, oh, that makes sense, right? You're from the same family. It's so clear to see right now. But if you're not thinking in that context, you're not really looking for that, then you might miss it entirely. One of my favorite stories that's ever happened to me was in this church. Um, so as many of you know, I, I grew up around here and then in 2011, I moved to Minnesota and I did ministry out there for nine years. And occasionally I would come back uh, around Christmas time or different holidays and I would get the chance to lead worship um, for our church here and uh, visit my family. And it was just always a great time to come back and experience that. And there was one instance where I ran into an old friend who had been a youth pastor in the area, my um, good friend Kirk Truex, and as many as you know, he leads worship on, on occasion, 
And we hadn't seen each other for years at this point. And, and so he kind of came down and we met at the front here and we were having a conversation, just catching up. And my dad walks up into the conversation. My dad attended church here. And um, Kirk kind of sees him and, you know, we're having a conversation. I didn't even say anything because it's my dad. Like, we're just around each other. And Kirk stops. He goes, I'm so sorry. He goes, Brent, this is Bill Thomas. Um, he's one of the, he introduces me to my own father. <laughs> and I like, I took him on. I, I tried to give my dad the high sign, like, let's roll with this. And how awesome that'd be if we just continue that until this moment right here. And he had no idea. But my dad was gracious to him and he laughed and he goes, oh yeah, we've met. He's my son. And, um, and I just watched Kirk do this like light bulb, like last name. Oh, so much just became clear. And then, you know, it was, it was clear. Like, oh yeah, of course you're his son. Look at you, you're standing right next to him. You look just like him, right? Favorite moment. But he wasn't looking for it. He wasn't looking for the family resemblance. There was no context for that. And so he just, he completely missed it. What we could be in danger of when we look at Jesus' life is missing the family resemblance of the father. Of Jesus putting himself in position. And, And the disciples missed it so many times. Jesus clearly said to them over and over, I and the father are one. He said in John chapter 10, he almost got stoned for saying it. And I want you to see this exchange. If you would turn with me to John chapter 14. I want you to read this to see how clearly Jesus wants you to see the love of the Father in him. John chapter 14, verse 8. He's having an exchange with Philip. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Don't miss it, Philip. Don't miss it. If you can't just believe me at my word, at least look at what I've done and understand that that's the work of the Father. We have to look at Jesus, the everlasting Father, to know the love of God the Father. They are the same. And so I want to look at what does the love of the everlasting father look like? The love of the everlasting father looks like this. It looks like protection. In the context of a ruling king, the hope of all the inhabitants of the kingdom is that the king would protect them from harm, right? That as they sit under this king's rule, that he would do the things necessary, build up an army, build up the city, put things in place to protect the people from outside harm, but then also within themselves, that he would rule in a way that there would not be evil present within the city and he would protect them. Everybody understood that. But in the same way, the Father King Jesus desires to protect his people. And maybe you have questioned that in your life due to the circumstances that you have or are currently walking through or because 
Nothing about a father says protection to you because of your experience. Do not be confused. God the Father, the perfect Father, Jesus in his fatherly king reign wants to be your protector. Three verses that communicate that in Psalm 46, one, Psalmist declares that God is our refuge and strength. He is a very present help in trouble. Second Thessalonians three, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And later in Isaiah 41, the Lord says, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The love of the everlasting father looks like protection. He desires to protect his people. It also looks like discipline. A good king, he upholds the law. He requires consequences for wrong actions and speaks truth when there is a lie present. He does not let things just continue on a way. He rather corrects and guides his people. A good father has to do the same thing. The discipline of his children is important, it's vital, but it must find its main motivation from love. Changed hearts are the goal for every father, not just modified behavior. And there are times when discipline is the most loving thing that you can give to your child. And Christ the Father King, he does this perfectly as he resembles the heart of Father God. And sometimes this can be a difficult one for us because we often make it synonymous discipline with punishment, that God must be punishing me for the things I'm going through. God must be wanting to hurt me. Let me just be clear. The Lord is not sitting up in heaven with a magnifying glass, just having fun, putting hard things in your life. Rather, often the hard things we walk through are consequences of our own actions, our own sin that the Lord has given us over to for us to be revealed. In the same way, eventually your kid just needs to figure out not to touch the stove because it's hot, even though they really wanna touch the stove, at some point, they're gonna have to touch the stove to realize it's actually hot, dad wasn't lying. God often has to do that with us. Okay, you keep asking for it, figure it out. Come here, it's okay, we'll put some cold water on. God loves you enough to discipline. I think there's a, a great passage. One more turn with me this morning to Hebrews chapter 12. The discipline of, of God is motivated by love. Look at verse five, Hebrews chapter 12. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Here the writer of Hebrews is quoting Proverbs where he says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. 
For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God loves you enough to not leave you where you are, but to use discipline as a means to bring us back into the right path when we wander off. I love the Psalm 23 uses the rod and the staff. The good shepherd who loves his sheep enough to train them at times with the rod and to pull them back in with the staff. Not out of anger, right? This is, just so, this is such the danger of an earthly father's heart is that we just are so motivated by correcting our kids to look like how we want them to look rather than chasing down their hearts the way the shepherd chases down his sheep. The same shepherd who loves us enough to leave the 99 and go after the one because the love of the everlasting father also looks like compassion. See, the Old Testament and just world history is plagued with kings who rule from evil desires and selfish motives. We see Pharaoh treating God's people as slaves. King Saul starting as a humble man and then becoming a tyrant and vicious manhunter. And even King Herod, so paranoid that someone might threaten his throne, he orders the genocide of an entire region of male children when the wise men don't inform him about Jesus' birth. The thing all those kings lack is just compassion for their people. But our God is a king with compassion, full of grace and mercy. A few verses proving this. Matthew 9.36, Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Luke 15, Jesus is giving the parable of the prodigal son describing what the father is like to sinners. And it says that he arose, came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. In Psalm 103, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And this compassion, this tender heart and empathy towards us, sinners, his children, has led him to show us the love of the everlasting father by his sacrifice. The love of the everlasting father looks like sacrifice. Have you ever heard the term whipping boy? You ever heard that? It's kind of a an allegory today, but it finds its origins in political history. One of the most infamous accounts of this position is showcased in the 1987 classic film, The Last Emperor. This movie tells the richest to rags story of child em emperor Pu Yi. Emperor Pu Yi was the last living emperor of the Manchu dynasty in China. 
And what is perhaps most interesting, at least for our sake, is one account that happens towards the beginning of the film. See, from the moment of his birth, Puyi was surrounded by the trappings of imperial power, luxury, everything he could desire. A thousand servants existed to fill his every whim. And at one point, Puyi's brother asks him, what happens to him when he makes a mistake? And the emperor responds, when I do something wrong, somebody else is punished. To demonstrate this, he picks up an ornate jar and he smashes it on the ground. And immediately a servant is taken out and beaten for the action of the emperor. And this was not an uncommon occurrence in kingdoms all over the world. It was viewed as totally unacceptable for a king or royalty to be punished even for their own wrongdoing. But nonetheless, the world understands the need for justice. Someone has to pay for wrongdoing, but certainly not the king or anyone in his family. Loved ones, do you see the contrast of our father, King Jesus? He is not some spoiled boy living a life of luxury, letting others pay the penalty, not only for their sins, but for his sins. Rather, we are the ones smashing the jar over and over and over again. And motivated by love, Jesus was not condemned to the world. He came to the world to save it. He walked out of the throne room of heaven and came as a humble child to grow into a father for his people. The greatest flip of the script ever. He gives up everything for those who have no deserving aspect of it. Philippians 2 who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, the sacrifice of the Father King. Isaiah 53, later Isaiah would give a continual prophecy of this same child who is everlasting father and say that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And most famously, John 3, 16 and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The love of the everlasting father looks like sacrifice. So I gotta ask, do you know this type of love? Have you felt and experienced the love that only Jesus can show you as the perfect father? 
The hope and joy that you can find at Christmas is only found when you see the love of Father King Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, resembling his Father in his love to us. The only Father we can truly call good, this happens a lot, right? What's your dad like? He's a great dad. He's a good dad. But he's not the perfect dad. None of us have ever had a perfect dad. But you can put your hope and your trust and you can find love from a father in Jesus. He shows us his love through his protection, his discipline, his compassion, and his sacrifice. And we can all know this love today. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, help me to use that term for you more clearly in my own heart. Help it not to be just a title that I assign, but an understanding of the characteristic of both Father God and Jesus the Son, that you view us as your children. God, that everything that that Christmas celebrates culminates into the sacrifice of Jesus who loved his children enough to pay the price for their sin. God, thank you for being good to us. Thank you for being our protector, for correcting us when we're wrong for showing us compassion and for the sacrifice that you laid out. Lord, I pray that today we would start to view you as the only good father. No matter what this life has brought us, God, would we put our hope and our trust in you and give you glory for what you've done. Everlasting father, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.